Amen. Can you show our worship team your appreciation as they're seated this morning? We're grateful for you guys leading us today. I want to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, we're continuing our series on temptation. As you're turning there, i got a couple things I want to mention to you as we get ready to study God's Word. The first one is this. Last week I asked you to pray for our sports camps and... Um, I asked you to pray that we get 75 kids registered for each one, and we actually have 200 kids total registered for this upcoming week of sports camps. And so, thankful for your prayers and for the leadership that Cody and Noah have given us. So, we need you to pray in this upcoming week for this outreach in the morning in Dumfries and in the evenings at Pillar Stafford. Just a great opportunity for us as a church to impact our community this week. Uh, listen, you may not be serving directly, but we covet your prayers throughout the week for how God will use us in the lives of uh, most people who are attending who have never, we've never met. And so we're really excited about that opportunity. The second thing is something I, I, I want to also mention is, is that tomorrow afternoon I'll be meeting with the principal of Swans Creek Elementary School here in Dumfries, our original old meeting location. And we're going to be talking about details for us returning to Swans Creek to meet there as a church. Uh, we have a goal that we've been working on to try to get us in one service for our Pillar Stafford commissioning service two Sundays from now. And it looks like that's going to work out, but I'll be meeting with the principal tomorrow. So I'm going to ask you to pray for that meeting. There's a couple reasons we would be excited to be able to get back to Swans Creek. One of them is, uh, you know, we have a whole part of our family in our Spanish-speaking congregation that we want to get back under the same roof with us, uh, joining in fellowship and worship in the same building as them. And they need a location beginning August 1st when Pillar Stafford begins meeting in the facility down there. And so we want to be able to welcome Jose and Andrea uh, back into our lives and that whole church at IBGE. So we're excited about that possibility. Also, um, another reason is we want to we get our children's ministry fully stacked out to where it was previously. And so that Sunday, we want to get back to going up to second grade with our children's ministry. And as soon as possible to expand back to fifth grade, uh, offering kind of the full opportunities that we've had in children's ministry. So our goal is by early August to be functioning in that way. And um, also, we'd like to be in one service. Uh, and so we look forward to that opportunity. I think it's going uh, to work out, but I would really appreciate your prayers as we prepare for that. And I'm thankful for the things that we've already seen the Lord do. And, um, and I'll update you. I partly say that today because it's not a sure thing. Um, and I wanted to get it on your attention so that then uh, when we update you, you're already kind of be prepared to be looking for information uh, because it'll be a quick turnaround to, uh, in two weeks to know where we're going to be meeting and where we're going to be at. And so we'll get the word out as soon as we, we know and we can push forward to that, with that plan. With that being said, let's turn our attention now to what we're here for. Let's look at Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13 and then we're going to focus in on verses 1 through 7. Verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your help as we come to these words. Not only that we would understand these words, but through these words we would understand ourselves. Lord, that your Holy Spirit might be searching us through them. Lord, we would trust your goodness and trust that in searching and bringing to the surface weakness and temptation, you are strengthening and preparing us. And so we welcome you to come like a surgeon to help us, to prepare us, to bring us into greater spiritual health and ask that you would use these words and your spirit to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, on Father's Day, I had the opportunity to do something I'd never done before. I flew a plane. Now, some of you may be thinking, I'm not sure he's capable of doing that. That sounds troubling. And you're probably right. It would have been troubling, except for I was in a very, very small plane And uh, I was with a flight instructor who was giving rides to people and showing showing everybody kind of how flying worked. But, but, you know, I never imagined when I got into the plane that I was going to have the opportunity to grab the controls. That was not in the cards in my mind as I was going in there. And I got in the plane and we started going up and he said, do you want to fly this thing? And I said, well, of course I do. And uh, I, there's just, I mean, even just with him there, you know, there was so much to think about as everything was going on, just trying to figure out how to fly this plane. I have to admit to you, I was not very good at it initially. And I, you know, despite all the times that I had flown planes and video games, I discovered very quickly that it was a little more difficult than that. But you know, I noticed another thing as I was getting in the plane, I I realized that this flight instructor who had flown a countless number of hours and been up so many times, taught other people how to fly, as he was getting ready to fly, he had a little checklist book. Everything he did was written down in the book, and he went from the moment we got in, he was was checking every step, flipping the page, checking steps, even simple things like turn the plane on. Now, I mean, how much do you need to really know about flying? Does that really belong in the checklist? Uh, But he went through every step of that as he prepared to take off. 
You know, maybe as we come to a series like this one on temptation and look at passages that may be familiar to you, you may be tempted to think, I don't know if this is really for me. Maybe we don't need to go back to all these fundamental things. But you see, one of the things you realize is when there is something at stake, even as important as flying a plane, it's important that we go back to the fundamentals and make sure we understand what's going on. And part of the reason that we are doing a series on battling temptation and the basics of fighting sin is so that we can review in our own lives that sense of checklist, that sense of whether we have prepared ourselves to face the different ways that we face temptation day in and day out. And so that brings us to Genesis chapter 3. Pastor Clint's done an amazing job practically bringing us into this series the last few weeks as he thought about the inner source of temptation and the outer source of temptation. And now we're going to go back to kind of the first passage that begins to show us what we need to understand about temptation in the Bible here in Genesis chapter 3. One of the most fundamental passages on the topic. To do that, let's just kind of get in the neighborhood a little bit of Genesis. You know, the first few chapters of Genesis are recorded in such a way as to not only communicate key insights about the earliest events of history, but their purpose is recording them in a way in which we're to see them as our story as well. It'd be easier for you to just see this as a story about Adam and Eve and their temptation and interaction, but the way this passage is designed is it's supposed to be explaining something about who we are in our story. Because of that, the events are communicated to some degree through symbolic language that is meant to sort of pack a lot of meaning into a few short sentences. So that, that symbolic language is intended to give meaning beyond the bare te- details of the events, not less. You see, as you read, this, this, this account assumes some familiarity with certain ways that the story is being told and God's work in the people of Israel. And because of that, the stories themselves, sometimes they leave us with questions, don't they? Don't you have questions when you read a passage like this? But, there, but we... We are left with sort of questions that this passage really isn't trying to answer. For example, why is the serpent talking? Anybody with me on that? I mean, you read it and you're sort of like, what's going on here? What kind of serpent is this? And when did they start talking? And then I immediately like, when did they stop? Is this over? Is this a possibility again? Is this, are we to understand this to be a normal thing then, not normal thing now? Is it unique? You know, then I'm sort of like, what did God intend to do with these different trees and their distinctions, right? You've got all sorts of questions. Like, you got this one that they're not allowed to eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but he's put the tree of life in the middle. How does that work? What did he intend to do? What, what about all the other trees of the garden? Was it all the fruit? How big was the garden? You start asking questions, don't you? Some of them are interesting questions. But one of the things we have to realize is sometimes we're even tempted to ask more cynical versions of questions. Something like, you're telling me the biggest problem in the world is that Adam and Eve ate the wrong fruit? I mean, it doesn't seem like that big a deal. It was there, it was on the tree. Oh, was it magical fruit? Didn't understand that part. That's, that's what cynicism sounds like, right? Instead of, and so here's what I want to say to you, you know, when we come to a passage like this, 
where there's a lot going on and there's actually a lot of substance to the passage, we're tempted to have all sorts of questions we would have liked answered, but we have to remember this wasn't given to us in a vacuum. It was actually given when sin had already wrecked the world. The people are discovering where, what really went wrong, and it's given as a way of answering a more important question in our lives, which is how does sin get in on our lives? How does temptation really work on us, and where did this all come from? And so it gives us some insight then into human nature. You know, now if you're already, listen, I just want to admit, if you're already looking for an out from taking the Bible seriously, you can use these unanswered questions as a sort of way of just dismissing it and pushing aside its wisdom altogether because this account didn't satisfy your questions and focus on what you want to do and fit into your particular view of the world. But listen, if you're willing to listen and remember that the God who created the universe, nothing is outside of his bounds. And as he delivers his truth to us, we often find that, that things go beyond just our normal observation at times. And God is capable of supernatural intervention. And, so, and, and we don't discount spiritual forces at work. We realize that things can get a little crazy. But they're also possible. But if you're willing to listen, here's what I want to say, and I just want to invite you to listen to the insight that we get as we look at the substance of what's being presented to us here. If you're willing to listen, you'll discover that this passage particularly isn't concerned with answering the sort of detailed questions we were just talking about. It's getting at some more central things about human nature through this scene that can help you and me understand who we are and what our real challenges are when it comes to sin and temptation. And so for a moment, let's look at that. Let's focus in on that. The ways in which temptation worked in this moment, in Eve's life, and in Adam's life, are the same ways and real challenges that we face with sin and temptation. The ways in which temptation worked in this moment in the garden can give us key insights into the way it always works as we grapple with who we are before God and why we find it so difficult to honor him. So I want to just invite us to lean in and through this scene, look and discover ancient insights to our present problems with temptation. And so we're going to look at four key insights to our present problems with temptation that I see here in this text. And I want you to see them with me so you know I'm not just grabbing them out of thin air. Here's the first one. The first thing this passage shows us about temptation, the first ancient insight is this. Number one, temptation tests our clarity about God's instruction. How does temptation work? It tests our clarity about God's instruction. Look at verse 1. After we're introduced to the serpent, who later in the scriptures we find out is being used by Satan, the deceiver, to tempt Adam and Eve. After we're introduced, in the second part of verse 1, we get to the work of temptation. It says, he said to the woman, did God actually say? I mean, you get the undertone of this passage, right? You get the question. The question is, is, is testing the clarity. What, do you really know what God requires? I mean, you know, have you really thought about this? Did God actually say you couldn't touch this? And we find out a little bit that that actually Eve doesn't have total clarity because when she speaks back to him about what God, she understands God has actually said in verse 3, she actually adds something 
to what had originally been communicated to them by God. In verse 3, it says, when she answers, she says, God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, if we go back, this is really referencing the instruction God gave to Adam in chapter 2. Verses 16 and 17. So if you have your Bible open, you can flip back a few pages and get a little bit of clarity. You can see some of the differences. And let me just read it. It says, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Did you notice what it didn't say? It didn't say don't touch it. So here we, have, here we have the first sort of beginnings of this temptation is to loosen up the clarity about what God has said. To, to play on that sense of confidence and certainty about what God requires so that we begin to imagine, maybe I can just go ahead and do this and, and are open to suggestion. And so, so it goes from, did God actually say to, evidently, she's overstepped what God has actually said. And there's a lack of clarity. Now that gives us a little insight into one of the ways in which temptation works in our life. I want you to notice that the first work that the tempter does here is, is a way of laying the groundwork for sin by subtly sowing confusion and undermining clarity about what God has said. That's how it works. You see, clarity matters. Clarity matters when it comes to temptation because when we're, when we're in the throes of temptation in our life and temptation comes knocking at our door, the pace of decision making just has a way of just speeding up, doesn't it? You see, we don't get to slow-mo through the temptation time. And when the speed of things is moving and when the pressures are on, when, when, when you add pressure and stress in a situation where we feel weak and, and then you, we become uncertain about what God has actually said and actually instructed, then it sort, of, it sort of comes with a sort of confusion and fog that requires a kind of certainty. Now, I heard this put humorously recently by a comedian named Nate Bergazzi. I'm not recommending you go home and listen to Nate Bergazzi, all right? I just want to go on record. Last time I made a recommendation, some people listened to the recommendation in the car, and it didn't go so well. Uh, listen, if I reference something, I just, I heard this bit by Nate Bergazzi, you enter at your own risk, all right? This is not a pastoral recommendation for comedians to listen to. But, you know, he, he talked about something that kind of got at the importance of clarity. He does this bit where he talks about them having their first child, him and his wife, and the instructions that, that you get at the hospital. He said, you ever notice, you know, that they don't tell you all that much. If you've ever had a baby like that first time, unless you read the book, What to Expect When You're Expecting, you may be going in blind. I mean, they just wheel that baby into the room and they're like, all right, it's yours. You're up. I can remember putting the first diaper on and giving the first bath and just being like, I, I, you know, you wonder. He, he even points out, you know, you wonder, how often are you supposed to feed this thing? What do we do when it cries? How often does it, you know, how much, how much should we listen to it cry before we, you know, lay it down to sleep and let it go? I mean, all those kind of things. It really it feels like you get no instructions or help when you're at the hospital. But there is one thing he said that they always do emphasize and you can't miss. The one instruction they give to everyone is, no matter what, don't shake this baby. Right? 
And he, you know, in his thing, he goes on, he says, you know, they give you a class, you know, and they emphasize no matter what, don't shake this baby. What are you supposed to, what is the one thing you're not supposed to do? Don't shake the baby. You know, and then they bring out a form and you read it and it's just don't shake the baby like a hundred times and you sign at the bottom, I promise I won't shake this baby, right? And, and, and before they leave, they review the class. Now you're headed on out. What's the one thing that we don't want you to do? And the answer is... Don't shake this baby, right? Why all that clarity? Because of parental exhaustion. I mean, it's a real thing. Some of the people who laugh the loudest are in the midst of it, right? You know, you know there's just that moment and the baby's been home for like four or five days and hasn't stopped crying and you've been up through the nights and, and, and you're, you're at your wit's end. You've tried to figure out everything you can do to get it settled and to feed it and make sure it's cared for, but it's still crying. And I had some children who were kind of like this and, you know, we were marching them through and you're thinking, what do I do? What do I do? And you're like, you know, I'm trying to remember the instructions. Am I supposed to shake this baby? Maybe that's the missing element, right? I should just shake this thing. And so some of you are like rocking the baby hard, you know. You're not shaking it, just bouncing it up and down the steps and trying to coax that baby into sleep. You know, listen, the point is, you see, what seems clear in the broad daylight can quickly become confusing in the dark. Others have said it this way. What seems clear on the mountaintops in life can become uncertain in the valleys. And in the throes of temptation, we need to have a certainty about what God has said. It it protects us. That is why the tempter works to keep us unclear about what God has actually said. The other night we were out... um, we were out uh, knocking on doors, probably about 12, 15 of us uh, from the church, uh, introducing people to Pillar, praying for people, asking how we can care for them in their community. And uh, one, of the, uh, one of the groups was talking to someone, and, and the person was, you know, they were preaching their own message, right? This is what happens if you've ever done this before. You know, you open the door, some people, they got a message for you, you know. And uh, they did. And, but... But, you know, in the midst of that, that you've got to be ready because, because people have thoughts about what the Bible says, what it doesn't says. And, and, and this particular guy, he said, you know, Jesus never instructed us to do anything. <laughs> uh, Terrence was in that group. Now, now, listen, if you haven't paid much attention to the Word of God and you're not studied in God's Word, you might be tempted to, to believe something like that, right? You see, the, the less you're clear and close to God's word, understand what Jesus instructs, you might be ready to get gone, hook, line, and seeker. And, uh, you know what? Maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. Maybe Jesus didn't do that. But if you have clarity from God's word, you're like, man, there's all kinds of things he instructed us to do. You see, what the tempter does to, to begin to prepare us for temptation is loosen our confidence. Temptation tests our clarity about what God has said. Second thing temptation does, we see here in the passage, is temptation tests our confidence in God's goodness. Now see, once we have a little bit of confusion and aren't sure what God has said, or we've lost sight of the clarity and strength and importance of what God has said, temptation tests our confidence in God's goodness. You know, by the time we get to verse 4, it's a full-on attack on what God has said. He's no longer hiding it. hiding the hook inside the bait he's saying you will not surely die at the end of verse 4 
Direct contradiction to what God had said, but now the challenge is on, right? But, but look at verse 5. Here's the new idea. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The second way temptation works is temptation tests our confidence in God's goodness. That's what's going on in the text. When it's time for the direct attack and God's warning has been contradicted, he explains that the warning is sort of a false drama that God has made up to control you. You see this warning that you'll die, that there's a problem with not listening to God's instruction. It's sort of bound up in this idea that God's giving a false warning and really what God doesn't want is for you to have the sort of freedom and power he has. You hear it in the passage? You see it in the attack? The direct challenge here is to the goodness of God. Do you see it there? God is keeping you from something. You know, he knows that if you eat that fruit, you'll be like him. Now, the assumption in that is you'll have power that he has. You'll have insight. You'll see through all of this stuff. And the assumption is God doesn't want what's best for you. God's trying to hold you back. And so, listen, so much of temptation sounds just like this. This is the heart of temptation. God's keeping you from something. He's holding you back. He doesn't want what's best for you. He's stifling you. God just wants to control you. I mean, do you really want to be controlled by these words? old words, so much has changed. God is standing between you and your best. God is standing between you and your good. That's what temptation sounds like. You see, what the tempter does, and what he's done there, is he's moved God between you and your best and made God the enemy. Isn't it amazing? I mean, just think about it for a second. Isn't it amazing how ready we are? Have you ever noticed how quickly, in moments of temptation and difficulty, we're ready to see God as the enemy of what's good for us? <laughs> I mean, it's uncanny almost that we immediately, when God has restricted something from us, assume that he's just in the way. This is the way temptation works. It sets God up as the enemy standing between us and what is really good for us. And when we, when we read this, we often do not stop and ask the question, is God here really standing between Eve and something that's good for her? Is God here standing between Adam and something that's good for Adam? You know, it's, it's, it's made to sound really desirable, isn't it? Look what it says. Verse 5, God knows. He knows something that you need to know. He's holding back. He knows that when you eat of it, your eyes are going to... Who wouldn't want their eyes opened? Right? This sounds great. Open eyes, freedom, seeing everything. And this is the same sort of situation that we're fed, right? 
freedom, open eyes, cut yourself loose. He knows that your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. I mean, wow. Why wouldn't God want us to be like him? Finishes off, knowing good and evil. And that's just kind of tucked in there, right? At the end of the sentence. The way you'll be like God is that you'll know good and evil. And we never stop to ask the question, would it be really good for us to know good and evil the way God knows it? <laughs> I mean, in one sense, we go, yeah, I guess it wouldn't hurt to know God's goodness the way God knows it. And there's no question God had every intention of continuing to reveal his goodness and blessing to them. But, but God, who is infinite in his knowledge and wisdom, who understands the depth and terror of evil, do, do, are we really capable of holding up under knowing what God understands about how evil things can really be? You see, this is what's at play. This is what's at stake, right? Because what's going to happen is the rest of Genesis is going to show us that Adam and Eve and us, we are not prepared to, to deal with the level of destruction and terror and sin and twistedness that, that, that comes into the world when we forsake God's instruction and direction. God's not standing between them and what's good. He's standing between them and what they can't handle when they throw him off and begin to lead themselves. Listen, we're still dealing with these realities. Consider for a moment that this isn't just an ancient problem, but a very modern one. If we throw our confidence off in God's goodness, we discard our willingness to have our lives limited by what God provides for us, what God knows is good for us, can we really handle all the ways things can go wrong as a result of it? I think we feel tested by this, modernly speaking, through the increased exposure we have to the knowledge of evil going on around us in the present day. I, don't, I mean, I don't know if things are particularly more terrible in our time than any time past or other times in history. It's possible there might be some aspects of things that are, I think there's, uh, it's obvious from God's word, at all times there's been some pretty bad things going on under the surface. And you know, there has been times in the past where it was easy to get in our little bubble and stay out of things and not hear about a whole lot of what was going on in the rest of the world or the destruction of evil and sin and wickedness that can take place. But in the advent of social media and direct availability of all sorts of news across the world, have you ever felt crushed under just the weight of how terrible things can be? In fact, if you're like me, you can only take so much of some of the stories, right? Most of us have never plunged ourselves in to reading about the most egregious evils that have taken place in the world. We can't handle it. I mean, I think our exposure to it probably has some correlation to the rise in the modern pandemic of anxiety and depression and disillusionment and fear. We weren't made to process this sort of thing. We have, we have even official terms for the, the overload of dealing with the brokenness of the world. You think about post-traumatic stress and trauma are all terms that tell us we aren't even actually equipped to process how bad things can be. And yet, we live in a world where God has withheld the full effect of evil. You see, temptation tests our confidence in God's goodness 
by undermining our sense that God stands to protect us in his instruction rather than just restrict us. And so it's important in your own life that you believe that God's instruction and his boundaries are for your flourishing and good rather than buy into this idea that God is keeping us from what is good for us. There's a third thing we see here about temptation. We see that temptation tests our contentment with God's provision. One of the ways temptation works is by testing our contentment with what God has provided. This kind of shifts us in a different direction, seeing the way that temptation plays out in our life. Verse 6, it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. So what we see here is that temptation is intensified when we neglect what has been given in order to focus on what has been forbidden. Did you notice the way, the, the way that it's written? It draws to show sort of a focus on what's been forbidden. She sees it. She's concerned about it. She's fixated on it. And we're to understand that there's a contrast. Here's one tree that's been restricted. And they're in the midst of a garden where God says, all of this is for your good and provision. This is the way temptation works. It it, it takes our eyes off of God's provision, creates a limit about that, God, that, that provision, and tempts us about what's been restricted. You know, God has given a generous instruction to Adam in chapter 2. He basically says, look at all of this goodness. Everything God created was good. But there in the midst of the goodness, he cultivated a garden that was overflowing with fruit and provision and what we're to understand as an abundant variety. And he says to him, you may surely eat of every tree. This is all yours. But now as temptation is working on them, she's looking at this tree. It gives us how we can find certain temps, types of temptation at work in our life. We do so. We do so as we, this is how we can fight it. This is how we can fight temptation. We fight temptation as we accept God's provision for our needs in accordance with his will. And we realize he's given an abundance of ways to provide for the real needs of our life. Much of our temptation, listen, comes from seeking God-forbidden solutions to God-provided needs. You know, we're tempted to think the way to fight temptation is to starve our desires, but actually, well, the reverse kind of is true here in this passage. It's actually to feed on the provision that God has already given us. One of the best things we can do is rather than starve our desires is to stop and ask, are there ways in which God has already provided for these needs and desires to be met in my life, and how can I cultivate engaging in them, resting in them, pursuing in them, feeding on them for those needs and desires in my life? You see, cultivating contentment in God's provision protects us from So we can go a long way toward protecting ourselves from unnecessary temptation if we do this. If we ask the question, how does God provide for the fulfillment of this desire in accordance with his will? Now usually when we're fighting temptation, we're fighting with some sort of desire being satisfied in our life. The first question we can ask is, how has God already provided for this in a way that's in accordance with his will rather than contrary to it? 
So if you and I are going to protect ourselves from temptation in this regard, we're going to need to do two things. Listen, this is just a bit of pastoral wisdom for you as you look at the way temptation works in your life. The first one is this. We need to be honest and identify areas in our life where we really lack contentment. You're not doing yourself any favor by ignoring the sense of discontentment that you have in some area of your life. What we have to do is is get reflective enough where we see that this lack of contentment is an open door for potential temptation. Get honest about that area and begin to examine it. Once we are honest about how we're lacking contentment in an area, we're going to need to reflect, maybe on our own, maybe with other people, on how God has provided ways of providing for us in that area in accordance with his will. Not every desire is to be avoided. Most of them have been provided for by God in the provision that he's placed around us in our life. So here, temptation tests Eve's contentment with the abundance of God's provision by focusing on what she doesn't have or what's restricted. Which brings me to a final point. As we think about fighting temptation along these lines and doing it together, I want you to see that temptation tests our commitment to our God-given relationships and responsibilities. One of the ways that we guard against temptation, I'm going to show you this in the text in a second. One of the ways that we guard against temptation is by cultivating faithfulness in the assignments we've already been given. God has given us a number of relationships where we have a decently clear picture of how to be faithful in those. And we're called to cultivate faithfulness in those relationships. There are responsibilities and callings that God has given. Long before he told Adam to go find himself a purpose and find himself a destiny, he told Adam to fulfill a responsibility. He gives him that responsibility in verse 2. And we see that here, or chapter 2, and we see here in chapter 3, he's neglecting that responsibility and neglecting faithfulness to that relationship. And you see, you would say, I don't know if I see that, preacher. Tell me where, where is Adam the one falling down? Because it's been easy. You know, we've been tracking through how the, the temptation is working here in Eve's mind and in Eve's heart. And, and what's really most surprising about this text is how it's been saving for the end the most obvious detail and problem that's happening. I want to point it out to you, verse 6, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, underline this phrase if you're one of those people who underlines in your Bible, who was with her. Now, I don't know if you, while you've been walking through this, and we've been picturing this in our mind, had in your mind that, that all while this is going on, Adam is standing right beside her. He's standing there in the midst of this conversation. And what we're to understand is that Adam had a responsibility. Not only did he need to fight the temptation, he had been given a responsibility in the midst of this garden in a sacred space where God walked with them in the cool of the day, where he was to rule over it, where he was to make sure that it continued to multiply and flourish. He was told the instruction in chapter 2 about the trees that were there and the clarity that was needed. He was the one who was reminded of the goodness of God in that provision, and he had a responsibility to speak up up to say something she hasn't been tempted alone she's been tempted there fought this entire battle with the evil one while Adam Adam stands by 
and is with her. I went up in that airplane, if you remember. And the thing, the other thing I really noticed was here I was, uh, you know, no experience. And he had his checklist. And for everything that was on it, he, he spoke it out loud <laughs> for our verification that we had seen him running through the steps. Now, it wasn't just something that was going on in his own mind. For everybody that was there in the plane on the flight, they could hear him walking through the step, watch him do the things, verify what was going on there because there's a measure of safety in taking it out of our hearts and minds and speaking and reminding ourselves of the clarity of what God's word is. And that reminds us that temptation is best fought in the context of faithful community. That that temptation tests this commitment that we have to our God-given relationships, the responsibilities that we have to one another. We clarify what has become unclear. We can remind one another about the goodness of God. We can point one another to the real provision that is around our lives when we verbalize and clarify and speak to one another about the goodness of God and His instruction for us. So Adam is present, but neglecting his responsibility. And it's a costly failure. They fall. They flee. They hide. They're ashamed. All the imagery is meant to present this sort of tragic result from their decision to forsake God's instruction. You see, the garden, we can pick up from verse 8, in part was a place where they met with God. A place where they experienced God's provision, blessing. Where there's a sense of nearness and fellowship. I mean, it's, it's almost a powerful phrase. Mysterious to some degree, the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I mean, when I hear those words, you know, when you think about those words, you get the sense this wasn't the, wasn't the first time he had done that. <laughs> that there was a, a rhythm. There was a joy. There was a fellowship. And when the Lord God, in whatever way he did this, we don't, it doesn't tell us, right? We don't get any of the details. But, but we can fill them in. I mean, just imagine. Just, there's a closeness to it, right? A sense of intimacy just walking together. God, in the cool of the day. And that's what they trade. That's what they forfeit. The truth is, if we've been paying attention this morning, we've been probably reminded today already of many ways in which we've been like Adam and Eve. Like them, we fall into temptation. We've given in, we've distrusted the goodness of God we've forsaken his instruction like them we felt the consequences of falling into temptation and sin produces shame tempts us to our own solutions of running and hiding covering up wondering if we could ever live exposed 
We're even convinced deep down that if there really is a good God, we've blown any real chance of knowing him, of walking with him, of experiencing his kindness again. We've, we know what that's like, to fall, to feel the distance, to imagine, if only I could walk with God. But the rest of this story, here, and the rest of the Bible, tells us the opposite of our fear. You see, God came looking for Adam and Eve. In their sin, in their failure, falling to temptation, hiding in the bushes, God came looking. It reminds us then of Jesus who said he came to seek and to save that which was lost. God came looking for Adam and Eve. Sure, things would change, but he would not leave them. He would cover their shame. He would cover their sin. He would call them out of hiding. And ultimately, he would give them a promise that one would be born who would do this for everyone, cover their sin and cover their shame. We find in the rest of Scripture that Jesus is the Son who has come to seek us in our failures, come to seek us in our sin and bring us back from the devastating consequences of falling to temptation. And we find that at the cross of Jesus, at a different tree, that instead of Jesus giving in, the amazing thing is we've got this tree that no longer has fruit on it. It's been stripped bare of its fruit. No fruit on the tree, empty to provide nourishment for him. And as our sin is laid upon him, we see him up there and we're told that Jesus was totally exposed. <laughs> It's almost uncomfortable to think of Jesus up on the cross, entirely exposed on a fruitless tree that is the picture of our sin. But there he is, just exposed to the total shame before God of our sin. Willingly saying, Father, your will be done. And he's exposed under the weight of our sin so that we would know that there's no sin in our hiding that God hasn't dealt with in the light of day through the cross of Jesus. That there's nothing right now in the recesses of your life that you think is so ugly and so terrible, failure so deep that God is not looking to bring you back into fellowship with him today. Because his son bearing our shame was totally exposed so that we could be covered and welcomed around his table, robed in his righteousness and rejoicing at the feast he's provided for us. This is the good news. Listen, if you don't know what it means to have a relationship with God, it's that you are trusting that promise, that, that God is not waiting for you to fix yourself. He's come looking for you through Jesus Christ today, and he's reckoned with your sin. You don't have to fear coming out of hiding, confessing your sin to him, receiving the promise of his forgiveness, and having your shame covered as he brings you back into fellowship today. Listen, if you're here and you've never understood the, what Christianity is all about, it's about that. 
That's the heart of it. If you have been trying to figure out what it means to have a relationship with God, it's about this, that you are invited today, no matter how much you've sinned and failed and fallen to temptation, to confess your sins to God, to trust the promise that he covers your sin through what Jesus did for you on the cross. And that not through your works of righteousness, your self-improvement, but according to Jesus' perfect righteousness, you can be forgiven and saved and drawn into fellowship with God. So today, if you will flee from sin and trust that promise, then you can have this hope of fellowship. It's pictured in what we're about to do as we take the bread and the cup. We are going to say, no matter how much we've sinned, as we confess our sin, God invites us to his table for fellowship. To know him, to deepen our roots in his goodness and to feast on his provision. Listen, Christian, if you're here today and, and maybe, maybe your spiritual life could be characterized over this past season of your life as hiding from God. You're ashamed. You feel beaten down. And today is the day for you to know that there in the quietness of this moment, as we respond to God's word, right before God, just come out of hiding. Confess your sin. Draw near to him. And find that the goodness of God awaits you as he welcomes you around his table. This is what we rejoice in. In a moment, we're going to share in the Lord's Supper. And if you haven't gotten the elements, you can get them back at the table as we transition into this part of our service. But I just want to encourage you as we sing and as we have this time of reflection that you would, you would meet with God right there in your seat. If you need to, for the first time, confess your sin and receive his forgiveness through faith in what Jesus has done, you call upon him. We'd love to talk to you more after the service. We want you to leave with a sense of clarity about what God has promised. If you're a Christian and you just need a time to renew your heart before God, to trust in his promises, to confess your sin, today's the day to come out of hiding before God and trust his promises. That's what we invite you to do. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word, for the goodness of it, for its invitation into fellowship. And we pray even now, as we consider these words and as we prepare for the bread and the cup, we ask that you... You would comfort us. You would convict us. You'd give us confidence that we can be honest. And Lord, you would give renewal in the hope of the gospel. Lord, I pray for any person here who maybe has never put their faith in Christ that at this moment, they might pray to you something like this. Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've forsaken you and I've fallen into temptation, but today I believe the goodness of your promise through Jesus Christ. Best as I know how, I want to turn from my sin and trust by faith in the forgiveness you've provided through him. Come into my life. Fill me with your spirit. Make me new. Lord, we pray, God, just for your spiritual work in our lives and entrust ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing. Take this time to reflect on these words.